Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Powatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, powered by First National. I am Adam Powatic, and with me is Aaron Cameron. We are live today at the Real Estate Forum's Speaker Video Series. We are lucky enough to have with us today, Phil Fraser, President and CEO and Founder of Killam Apartment REIT. We want to thank our sponsor, Yardy, on this episode. And of course, stay tuned for the end of this interview. Uh, Adam and I, we're going to digest the conversation we're about to have as part of the CRE After Show. Thanks for coming. Phil, welcome. Well, thank you very much for having me and, and I'm glad to be here, Adam. So Real REIT Conference, I guess you were, you were not at it, uh, not at last year because nobody was. It was uh, virtual. This is great. You know, we're back in person. I'm sure you're shaking a lot of hands you haven't shaken in a while. Absolutely. Too many hands, maybe. <laughs> <Yeah>. Too many. <laughs> okay, so founder's a big word and a great one for this, especially when you're talking about a portfolio, you know, kill them size. So let's go, let's go back to the start for you and the inception point of what is now uh, an institution in the Canadian marketplace. Well, if you don't mind, I'll even go back a few years earlier. And I think it really started when I was in university in terms of my real background and that I wanted to be involved in real estate. And so I went to school for nine years, four undergrad, and then I did a couple of graduate degrees, one in urban planning and my MBA, all from schools on the East Coast. And my first job was with a company called Marcel Trust, who morphed into RBC Capital Markets. And I stayed there for a couple of years as an analyst. I moved over to a regional brokerage owner, um, a company called Nova West, and we lasted two years from 90 to 92. I watched them come in one day and they closed the doors and we were in bankruptcy. Because that would have been at the height of the uh, early 90s and real it was estate a, issues. And it was a tough time to be in real estate. I mean, values were, were low. Interest rates were anywhere between 10 to 14% for a five-year term. And it was just tough. And money was tough. Lending was tough. And the ownership structure was very fragmented. So from there, I sort of kind of figured out how to make a bit of a living as a broker from that time on, and then um, really enjoyed everything I was doing. I was touching all types of real estate, whether it was apartments, commercial, a bit of industrial. I was a mortgage broker, did a lot of the sort of arranging mortgages back then for companies in Eastern Canada. And then we kind of morphed into a developer, got exposed to a little bit of the West, and that was the beginning of the REIT world. And when I was out in Calgary on many occasions, everybody was talking with this new company that went public in the apartment sector called Boardwalk. And I had this idea and I thought I could do it with the organization I was with, but could never get around to it. And so finally one day in about just in the beginning of 2000, I quit and said, I'm going to start my own publicly traded company. Knowing a little bit about the, the background back then, it basically the program for CPC shells was under the Alberta Stock Exchange. And essentially the key was is that you could do a blind pool. Uh, you needed a minimal of 200 shareholders that had to be residents of Alberta. You had to form a board with a bit of experience of either running a company or public traded experience and go out, raise the shell money. And then you had two years to look for a potential acquisition and if you could raise additional money, then you'd be listed on the venture. Or by the time I got this done, we went to the venture. So that shell money is for the sole purpose of 
getting to an IPO? Identifying an opportunity. Okay. Because this program was used a lot for oil and gas, but it was starting to sort of move into the real estate sector. So um, the easy part was actually in the first six or seven months of 2000, I incorporated. Side story, I had three tries to come up with a name. And people always have asked me, where did you come up with Killam? And really, the name was my third choice. And I was looking for a, a federally incorporated name. And it was the road I grew up on in the summertime. My parents were there as a summer cottage. It was called the Killam Road. So I just named it Killam at the Do time. Do you remember what the first two attempts were? Yes. One was Brownstone Properties got rejected and Bedford Properties out of like just the name. Right. I kind of like. So the connotations around brownstones quite uh, quite nice. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I like that, but it was taken. Yeah. So from there I went out and myself as a founder, I asked five other people that I knew had worked for or worked with, would they throw in a little bit of seed money and at the time it was $50,000 I was asking for and the six people said yes and I didn't get the 700,000 but I got 675. One guy threw in $25,000. And then we went out and it was Yorkton that was the underwriter. And it was pretty tough to get 200 names that had residents in Alberta at the time. It was like friends and families and the law firm that I used allowed me to come into the room, the boardroom, and, and give presentations to the partners. And, and back then, I was only looking for a couple thousand dollars per person, just as long as they were registered. So we got that launched in December of 2000. And these were the 200 original... Investors in Investors in Killam. Yeah. And the, we sold stock at 20 cents back then. And then from there, it took two years of hard slugging to try to drum up a little bit more equity and identify a couple of properties, a couple of false starts. But it was finally launched in February of 22, 2002. We had $10 million of assets, $2.5 million of equity, and 150 units. Three properties. As I'm trying to do the math of what that is on a per door, door yeah. basis. Yeah. $10,000 a door. No, it was around right? 50000 maybe or 40000 okay. It was pretty cheap. It was pretty cheap. And this is all out of Alberta. Just, you're doing it in the Alberta... On the exchange, but the properties were in Atlantic Canada. Okay, One in Halifax, two in Moncton. And so, started life as a micro cap. Couldn't pay ourselves. We didn't have any money from salary, but we had to pay our staff. Hooked into some pretty good eye bankers relatively early. We're very fortunate to sort of attract capital. Here's our story. And the story was, we are going to be the consolidator of the apartment sector in Atlantic Canada. Meanwhile, up and running, Boardwalk was the dominant consolidator in the West. Northern Properties with Jim Britton was the far north. Northern Properties and Capri was around. And they were doing Quebec and Ontario, especially Toronto here. So we were the fourth one in, in the business. So between 2002 to 2005, we grew exponentially in terms of people, numbers. By the end of three years, we had about 6,000 units and about $300 million in assets. And we are the largest apartment owner in every market in Atlantic Canada at the and time. So before then, like in, let's say 2001, before that sort of growth period, was the market in Atlantic Canada kind of similar to the rest of the country? It was fairly fractured, predominantly private, a lot of small owners. Like what did the... What did the marketplace look like? I mean, because you were sitting there going, this is, there's an opportunity for major growth here. It was totally fragmented. There was maybe one or two entities that actually owned properties in more than one market. It was basically second generation apartment owners. There wasn't a lot of new blood. 
into the sort of sector. And people were looking for exit strategies. And we were always considered in those first few years as the pigeon paying the highest price. And looking back, we were doing deals at 20000 a door, 40000 a door. What cap rate? Just because that's always fun. <laughs> it, was, they all, it started at 10 Right. And, and interest rates were? Seven and a half. So 250 basis yeah. point cap rate to interest rate spread. Okay. Yeah. Just, we'll, play, we'll play this narrative yeah, throughout the conversation. I got to get an Excel spreadsheet and plug that in <laughs> and see. Uh, it really does work well at those upper numbers as opposed to the. <laughs> we'll, we'll get to the today. Yeah, we'll get there. Yeah. The other part of it is, is that we, even back then, we identified our major markets or our home based markets. There was probably only about 80 to 90,000 apartment units, but there was this other aspect that we liked, which was the manufactured home communities. So Killam came out of the, the gate saying that we were going to consolidate the MHC business as well, because I like that. And the yields on, on those properties back then were 12 to 15. Wow. And so and the did, same interest rates? No, we couldn't. Um, a little bit higher in the Aaron, beginning. Aaron, you're a lender. You should know the yeah, answer to that. The answer was no. <laughs> they, wouldn't, they wouldn't give us the same, but we were okay with that. Yeah, of course. So, so fast forward where we are today. I think we've evolved. We've grown, we've grown with the industry at every sort of up and down part of, this, of the last few years. And I think today we find ourselves, and again, it started many years ago because from Atlantic Canada, we first went into Ontario in the manufactured home side of our business, then apartments. And we've been in the apartment business up here for 12 years of the 22. And then in the last six, we've moved out west and we have a pretty good growing portfolio in Alberta and also in BC. The move out west, was that really just a you know, hit kind of a critical mass or saturation point for Atlantic Canada? Well, it was that plus there was always, it seemed like I was always chasing the bigger carrot from some other part of the country in the sense that in the early years, it was hard to compete against not having a portfolio in the west with Sam. Because everything out there was gold. I mean, it was just so Sam strong. Sam being the founder of Boardwalk. Boardwalk, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, it was like, you know, why don't I have a few assets in out west? And no sooner did I really start to think I was going to do that, that all of a sudden it shifted from the west to Ontario. And then the guys that had come along later or had a bigger concentration in Ontario, everything was, oh, you got to have everything in Ontario because that's the real growth and there's lift on added down. And so through this, it sort of really dawned on me why am I trying to beat the market in terms of where the economic growth is going to be in a country that is always has one region better than the other performing? So from that, I said, we just want to be geographically diversified right across the country. And that's what we've been working towards for the last number of years. And really, it's more following the model of cap rate than the boardwalk, the inner rent, or mental that's concentrated in one area. Because Making a bet on one square on the yeah, roulette table. Yeah, I'd rather versus, just be yeah. completely diversified from an economical, economic regional diversification and just concentrate. And the other thing we concentrated on at Kelm in the beginning, those first three properties, two of them were brand new. And the third one was relatively new. It was a newer property in Clayton Park. And so we always believed newer was better. We didn't have to buy old stuff all the time. So throughout our history, we were trying to buy the newer product in the market. Some people will say, well, there's no real added Dow value to those properties. But that's not true because I think it attracted a lot of folks and they were in good locations. And that got us thinking earlier on that the real opportunity was to be a builder and develop on your own balance sheet, which was totally unheard of 
12 years ago when we built our first apartment building. For a re, unheard of for a re to take that, type, I mean, and let's just quick lesson and you tell me if I'm wrong, if I'm telling this wrong, but you get no benefit for the assets that you're under under development, right? From, yeah, a, from a, re, cash flow to, to a revaluation yeah. perspective. Right. So I mean, it's kind of not wasted capital, but it doesn't really show up in your valuation. Well, it hurts those sort of multiples in terms of earnings because you put your money in the ground first. It takes 18 months to two years to build it. And then you got to lease it up. But once it's leased up, it's very good. It there's, shows there's a lot up. of quarterly yeah. reporting in between yeah. start and finish yeah. that you've got to uh, endure. Well, because if you were trying to buy new back near the earlier part of creating Killam, there wouldn't have been that much product to buy. You know, there wasn't that many new apartments being being built. And now you obviously you are a builder. Are you looking to buy a new build now? Because obviously there's a much, much deeper market for projects completed in the last three years that you could potentially purchase? Yeah, we have, but we've done it in a couple different ways. I mean, the old way was, and again, we were essentially in our local market at Halifax, which is probably one of the most active rental growth development markets mm-hmm. in the country, especially from the base that when we started compared to what it is today. When we started, there was about 31,000 apartment units in Halifax. Today, there's about 53 with probably about three to 4,000 more under construction. So it's yeah, almost it's doubled. Wild so, growth. There. So you think 20 years, your stock has almost doubled. So just the age profile is so much better. And so in the beginning years, like almost every sort of market in Canada, the first generation of newer product was three or four story wood frame. And then it was with underground parking. And then it was mid-rise concrete and then right to the concrete towers. And so I'm talking about the smaller markets. I mean, Toronto was always different. It was just big, big condo, big structures. So in the beginning, we were buying new product from a developer. He was making a profit and we could buy new product in 2007, 2008 for $70,000 a door. And there was profit. Everybody was making money. And then over the years, we continued to buy and we ended up having relationships with developers where we basically knew we were going to buy, like almost pre-approved or pre-arranged. Here's the sale price. If I build it, will you buy it? And so, and then some of them, we took on the leasing risk to buy it almost empty or half empty, but the developer knew that he was going to get his money out, a bit of what he considered a profit and off to the races. It was almost forward purchases. Absolutely. And so we were lucky. There were repeat with the same developer. And essentially in the beginning, we seeded, not we, but, we were part of the seating process where they built, made the profit, could have put it back into the next building and the next building. And now in Halifax, yeah, I mean, there's very few local developers that are merchant builders compared to the Alberta and BC markets. They're all looking at it. I'm building this stuff from the next generation of family to the next generation, which is just a natural evolution of the apartment. You kind of a unique characteristic to the Halifax market to a certain degree. I think there's a more predominant private developer, owner there proportionately than anywhere else in the country. Aside from yourselves, really, yeah. right? Let's keep going. I mean, let's maybe just set the table. I mean, we want to get into kind of the kill him today and the kill him in the future and kind of what's transpired over the last sort of 12, 24 months and in the coming months. But what is the total size of the portfolio and what are the sort of the geographies that you're in and focused on? Yeah, we've got just shy of 20,000 apartment units. We got about six or 700 of those units that we manage and own 50%. We have an institutional or a REIT partner. That's really in Ottawa, the majority of those assets. On the park side, we've got about 6,000 units and we've got about a million square feet of commercial today. And then what about the development pipeline? 
We are just finishing up a number of buildings. We've built almost close to 2,000 of the units that we own. And what's the strategy with uh, taking on partners in some markets? Well, each one was kind of different. The Kingset one was at a time when we, it was another one of these times in the market where there was very low liquidity and we just had an opportunity to basically, we basically bought 50% of an asset in Alberta to get into the Alberta market and then they wanted to buy 50% of an asset we had in Toronto. And so it was kind of a bit of a swap and it kind of worked well for both of us. RealCan was, again, about four or five years ago and maybe a little bit longer, all the, when I say all, a lot of the retail REITs were looking for partners to start in terms of building out their potential residential portfolios on the land they owned. And so we ended up talking to RealCan from a culture point of view. It was a very good fit. And they had some pretty good sites, especially the ones in, in Ontario, up in Ottawa. And we just thought that, you know, if, if we could get in early, then why wouldn't we be 50-50 partners? And that's what we've done. The site in Gloucester, it's four phases. And we've, we've actually completed two now. There's still two more uh, potential buildings that can be built on the land that we own. And we just finished another one with them just around the corner as well. And so from a strategy going forward, it's maintain the growth by development or acquisition. Absolutely. And I guess there's some disposition depending on just you know, cycles of... Cycles and opportunities. Yeah, and opportunities. Yeah. Well, on that topic, yesterday I uh, was asked to moderate a panel at the apartment conference uh, on the topic of construction costs and development costs in a turbulent market. This, of course, would be impacting you know, your development pipeline, especially when you're talking larger projects, which it sounds like you're, you are involved in, you know, multi-year experiences. So what are you doing to manage some of those risks now? Well, the first thing is, is that over the last few years, I mean, we've been working hard on multiple locations, just getting to the point where we can say that we have a building permit and we can actually go into the ground. So over the last few years, I mean, we've been working actively through the planning process on, for projects in Halifax. We just finished up in Charlottetown. And here in Ontario, it's been Ottawa for many years. It's been uh, Mississauga where we just finished up and we're actively on a couple files out in Waterloo. And so with that, you're just kind of hoping that you're going to get one that actually comes through and you never know when the timing is, it's, whether it's six months or another 18 months. And that's the way that the current process is, is working. So we're just finishing up a wave of them, about four of them. We have in the ground trying to complete one in Halifax and one in Kitchener. And we just got a permit in our hands there a few months ago to start one in Waterloo. So to answer the question, every delay over the last two or three years has basically shown it's going to cost more from a cost point of view. Six months delay, basically you have to go back to all the subtrades and ask for a repricing. And it's, it's been going up. And so the, the one we just finished in Mississauga after about two and a half years of building it through COVID, which there were delays because of that, we're probably all in with land at about $445,000 a door. The most recent one that we were pricing and we basically have told the market in Waterloo is about 600000 And so to mitigate the risk, because we also believe that by the time we finish building it, we're going to be able to see increase in rents because that's been the other common part of the equation is that rents have been rising as well as the cost of construction throughout these last five years. But we're also looking at the model, and we have experience doing this, where we basically have built a building in Halifax. Half of it was condo, and half of it was rental. And so the condo was sold out 
we had a partner in this case and they made their profit and we stayed in and we just run it as an apart, uh, apartment building. Is that new for you? Is to, to have that part condo, part apartment? Like well, I haven't heard a lot of that. Well, we've done it. I mean, this the building is called Southport in Halifax and we probably have owned it and built it now four or five years. Okay. So is this we, like a shared podium, two tower concept? Or, no, this or is one really building. integrated. Really? This is okay. totally Interesting. integrated. So this works as well. And so you simply, basically the parking is split. One is condo, part of it, one level, one level for the renters. Even that building has the elevator shaft is basically the, for the condo, you go at one side and it's basically fob to get up there. And for the apartment um, renters, it's on different levels, straight right. level by level. And you just air parcel them off separately yep. and CMHC financing. Yeah. So, and now for the Waterlooic one, basically the idea is to basically design it condo quality throughout the building. So there's no difference. And then by the time we get close to completion, we'll decide whether it's going to go condo or not because we own the whole property. And this sort of basically gives us, we don't have to pre-sell at a price that we're not going to be happy with in 24 months. And we don't, we're not going to rely on the pre-sales, the deposits for part of the financing. We'll just do it as, as a, basically a, a straight up a rental. So I think that gives us flexibility. And on the site that I'm talking about, it's called Westmount Plaza. We believe we can get up to about a thousand units of residential on this site over time. And we're even looking at the next phase of maybe doing two towers, one condo and one apartments. And that, if we sell it out, and then that profit can be sort of turned back into the, the side of the rental. Do you struggle with trying to figure out the mix of apartment to condo and and you're kind of wearing two hats here, right? Because marketing an apartment building, building an apartment building for the holding is different than how you would kind of treat condos, particularly from an amenity perspective, from a, even just from a people, you don't like me to say this, but the quality of build and the quality of material and the units, like, like do you... Everything's the same. Do you have to, is you just, you treat it like it's building an yeah. apartment, but then you just kind of it, no. condo title some of them no, and it, sell them it's, out? it's built as a condo quality. Right. There's no difference. Benefit from it. Yeah. yeah. And locking in your cash flows at different points in time, the heavier weighting on each would impact that. It's, yeah, yeah it's interesting. Is that a model you duplicate elsewhere in the right circumstances? Yes. And the funny thing is, it's actually occurred a number of times in the uh, Halifax market. And so there's a few examples around. Oh, it happening there. Where the developers have done two towers, one apartment, one condo. So we didn't come up with the idea. No, (laughs) we're just benefiting from it. Apple never invented anything. They just perfected it. You know, it's uh, it's all you got to do. So I'm sensitive of time and I do want to get to some other conversations just about where we are in the marketplace and, and what you're seeing. I mean, it's a really interesting seat for you, Phil, ultimately from starting this company way back when, being public the entire time and now sitting here, September of 2022, where we are post-COVID, I will classify it as that, and entering a, just a, a totally different time with rising interest rates. We haven't benefited. I mean, effectively, as you started, you started in 2002 with your growth, you, you've, you have had, for the most part, a fairly steady decline in interest rates and decline of cap rates and increase of revenue, rental rates throughout that entire period. And that is not true today. So why don't we just start with COVID and just what you're seeing post-COVID and the, and the behaviors in the real estate market and maybe as it relates to your portfolio and renters and just what your thoughts are about how the world looks post-COVID. Good question. I think to start that, it was almost like just before COVID, the market fundamentals were the best I'd ever seen. And so when you think of that, I mean, throughout my life, it's always like, well, if it's too good to be true, then it probably is. And when is the shoe going to fall and it hits you in the back of the head or get kicked in the back of the head? 
Yeah. So there's always some sort of like, you know, you got to keep running. You got to be worried about your balance sheet. You got to be worried about having every, every building as full as you can. Think about your life safety features that everybody's living in a, in a building that's safe and there's accidents happen, but it wasn't a preventable accident. So from that framework, I remember telling a number of people, wow, the conditions are just amazing. Like our demand is right across the board. Interest rates are low. And starting to almost get a little bit of like, when is something going to happen? Because I've seen it before. And that's, I mean, there's not a lot of things about age that are really wonderful, but one of them is the experience. <laughs> and, and, you know, I've seen it. And I've seen what it, it takes. And, you know, and how quickly it can happen and, and catch you quickly, off guard. Yeah. yeah. So COVID hits, all bets are off. You know, we don't have to relive all the sort of the things that we did. But we rallied around the world was changing faster than I think most of us recognized. We come out of it. And because of the, I think the biggest thing is the driver of the federal government and their position on immigration, which I support 100%. We need population growth in this, in this country for all the reasons that are sort of talked about over and over again. And actually, the mobility that we saw and where people were saying, I don't need to live in downtown Toronto or the big urban centers. I can go to the smaller urban centers and it's a better quality of life. And, you know, the Victorias, Halifaxes, I mean, they were, they became attractive. And so for the first time in my lifetime, we had real population growth in Atlantic Canada year after year for the last five years. And we've seen huge changes. So now, as we look out, what has changed in the last 12 months, and is, is the biggest thing, is it's affordability. And where are we going as a country to house everybody? Along with, in behind that, is the ESG part of it. So the affordability issue, the supply-demand imbalance that we currently have, and I think it's going to get worse over the next 12 to 24 months. It's going to take everybody, and there's no one simple solution. I think it's got to, it's got to have all level of government saying, we work together, Everybody that's involved in the housing sector, no matter what part you're playing is, thank you and try to work harder and, and produce more because we need the housing. Now, you've got a lot of different sort of opinions, depending on where you sort of sit on the political spectrum, but we'll leave that for another time. But it is going to take a lot of effort from everybody. And it's hard because, you know, again, everybody's heard over the number of years how hard it is to get a permit. So the punchline is it's really hard. And again, you got to be really, really sort of there every single day to try to sort of move that along to get your permits in the city. But the thing that keeps me really interested in this sector and this business is really the ESG and how that has sort of converged into our world and the demands that we have from a reporting point of view. But basically, it's like being public where there, it's such a structured environment. You report every quarter. You have a lot of rules. You can do this. You can't do that. And there's a structure that is actually quite rewarding if you embrace being public for all the rules and regulations you follow. And there's a consistency. So there's also the ability to benchmark yourself against your competitors and see how well you're doing. And there's always a motivation to get better at everything you do. And so with the ESG and the growth of that and the demands, I mean, Fundamentally to me, it means that if you can improve what you're doing and still do everything that ESG wants you to do in terms of the environment, especially on the environmental side of reducing your carbon footprint, then why don't you embrace it in a big way? And the other part of our business, which I, you know, people don't really think about, 
it's a gross lease business, gross lease. We collect our rent and all the expenses are on the tab of the landlord. Where all the other real estate, it's a net lease business. Pretty easy to go to work and you don't really care about your expenses or the heating's going up, the cost of energy, because you just charge it back to the tenants. For us, every dollar of increased energy cost, insurance costs, that's eating away the profit. And what are you going to do to reduce it? So the embracement of what can we do to reduce our consumption on the utility side is now ingrained in the kilom. And I think what our actions basically are proof of what we're trying to do. We're leaders on solar power, putting rooftop arrays on a lot of our buildings. We got about 14 to 15 solar arrays producing electricity. We were first generation solar panel believers producing energy, hot water, to heat our hot water, but now everything that we produce on the rooftops is going to produce electricity to offset our consumption. We've got about a thousand units with geothermal, mainly in Ontario. We got one building in, in, in Moncton. Basically, our buildings are being heated by geothermal up to the 14 to 15 degrees Celsius. And then with split sort of um, units in the, in the buildings or the units, the tenant heats up the, their unit up to the heat they require. And in the summertime, they use it to cool their unit. So all those initiatives in terms of greening your buildings, I think, is, is the way of the future. And is there a business case for greening buildings, the work you've done purely economic without incentives from government? There's a few, depending on the province, on the solar panels, as an example. But right now, we average between a 5% to 8% all cash yield on every solar install that we've done. So essentially, it's better than the cap rate that you would buy the building at today. So, so you're, yes. in the, you're in the energy business, not the, uh, the rental I'm business. Yeah. <laughs> and are you finding tenant sentiment to change? Um, because that was always been one of those hard parts is it's got to be a ground up driver for a real buy-in throughout the industry. And tenants don't seem to really say, I, I will pay a premium if it's green. Yeah. And I don't think, I mean, there was, I heard this yesterday on a, one of the panels in the apartment conference People thought that the tenants would demand it and pay more. And that's really hasn't come around yet. It really is about saving energy, saving consumption and reducing our carbon footprint. And the beauty of it is once we do this, it's like a hitch. If I can get a solar panel array up on a roof, reduce my energy bill for my house meter in that apartment building. And then as I know that increases will come from the utility year after year, year after year, I'm capped for that percentage. Yeah. Now, and because you're public, are you forward looking at some of the regulatory changes? I know like the IFRS has been lobbied to change some of their auditing requirements and that there is a big push. We're seeing it already in Europe for this, the greenium, right? The, yeah. the greenwashing of like true, not just greenwashing of your, your state statements, but actually being held accountable for it. Because you're public, is that something that's on your mind that you know doing this is going to make it, are we going to be one step ahead when it ultimately comes down? It's about being able to quantify the, the data, the numbers, the energy you consume, and trying to explain to the reader or to the investor what are the risks around those factors. Yeah. And basically, you got to know what you're doing in terms of the energy consumption and then put in the issues or the strategies to sort of reduce it over time. Tenants aren't necessarily paying up for it. Are your shareholders paying up for it? Green, if they, if they, investors. Are they, yeah. do, if yeah. they think that you are the most preeminent or one of the most preeminent sort of focused on carbon neutrality and environmental as sort of a, a core tenant, does that 
show up in your share price? I don't know if it shows up because again, we're dealing with all the market forces, but it shows up in terms of investors that have funds that want to invest in companies that are that, that have good ESG scores. The last part of what we're doing a lot of, and again, it's because of technology changes, is the big thing was most of our buildings, if not all of them, are separately metered for electricity. That wasn't a standard here in Ontario for many, many buildings and still isn't for a lot of the buildings, but it's coming. The next wave, and it just came around about four or five years ago, when we did our first building in 2018, we built it where we separately metered the water. So now the tenant pays for their own water consumption and it takes off right off the bat that expense. And we know because the example we have is out in Cambridge where we built almost identical buildings three years apart 2015, 2018, the 2018 building had the separately metered the water and the, the water consumption is about 25% less. Yeah, of course. Yeah, of course. Yeah. We've had Peter Mills on from Wise Metering yeah. on the podcast a couple of times. And what I think is the next stage to, to, along this topic is now that is giving that data back to the tenants. Yeah. It's saying, hey, guess what, Mr. Tenant, you know, you got 200 units and you're the most u- highest usage. Or at the very least, you can look and say, okay, well, clearly there's something fishy going on. Why are they, <laughs> yeah. you know, Bitcoin yeah. mining was the example. Yeah, I think. Exactly. Yeah. The next stage, and we're just doing it, we get, we'll have our first building, is that you, you separately meter electricity, water, and now it's hot water as well. Yeah, that's so interesting. So they're paying for the hot water and we're doing that. Yeah. I mean, that's going to drive behavior. Like we know yeah. that oh, money talks as always, yeah. right? 100%. Um, the other question, I'm just, I'm curious, Phil, you know, in your, in your position growing this company from the start to where it is today, how many employees do you have now? 700, maybe up to 800 in the summertime. Yeah, that's wild. And I, I always like this question for someone that, that was the founder and you were an, an entrepreneur and now you're the leader of a, of a major institution. You couldn't, couldn't pay yourself the first year. Now you're paying 800 people. It's uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. a bit of a shift. How much time and energy do you spend on just the culture, the employees, the team members? And I mean, I know everybody says, of course, it's really important, but I mean, what is the Killam culture? What is it? What do you stand for? Well, we would have believed, and we actually won a couple of awards pre-COVID, and we thought we had a really good culture. And I think we now are re-examining where that is today, pre-COVID or post-COVID, because we got some work to do. I mean, in, in starting with the orientation, the education of the newer people that we've hired over the last two or three years that some of us haven't even met yet, we just lost so much. Yeah. And, you know, the expectation of work in the environment or in the office, I mean, we got to try to get that back the best we can, but also understanding the demands and expectations of employees, the newer ones. And then the other part of it is, is that expectation on wages. It's changed. Yeah. And so we just got a lot of work to do on it. Well, maybe with a, with a clean chalkboard now, uh, as we all kind of come back to work and work cultures in flux, it's a chance to kind of rewrite what, uh, what you want to do in that regard. For sure. So, Bill, last question, and then we'll, um, we'll adjourn here. Talked about pre-COVID, kind of where we are today, post-COVID. What does Killam 2030 look like? Let's give you, you know, six years into the future, eight years into the future. I think we're going to be a apartment company with a growing portfolio of, on the MHC side. We haven't talked at all, but again, we've got a growing commercial component, but it really, it's about commercial around apartment buildings that we own and that growth, that mixed use is important trend. I think it's, it's got really, really sort of important features for livability in cities and being a leader on this sort of sustainability, renewability of the energy that we consume getting down to being carbon zero. 
Thanks, Phil. Yeah, I mean, I think it's funny. You know, we've been talking about, we've been obviously doing these podcasts for about five years now and ESG kind of pops up, but it has been a lot of talk. And I think we're now starting to feel like there's some true action being taken and, and uh, happy to hear that it's a main, main focus of you and your, for you and your organization. Um, like to thank First National for powering the podcast. And of course, thank you, Phil, for coming on. Really appreciate you taking the time to do this. Thank you. Great conversation. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast After Show, where we go through the conversation we just had with uh, Phil Frazier from Killam. You know, I found that really interesting. We didn't get into it because we were kind of just running through the, the conversation, but there was a, some reference to it. So let's clarify. He was talking about Sam Coolius, the founder and now ex-president of Boardwalk REIT. He's still there and very well involved. We recently interviewed James Ha, who is now the president of Boardwalk REIT. What I found really interesting is that he kind of was like, oh, that, you can do that? Oh, I'll do that. <laughs> yeah. And did it and created Kill Him. And I, I kind of find it entertaining. You got Boardwalk over on West Coast and Kill Him over on the East Coast, yet they have this sort of intrinsic connectivity that you just never would have guessed. Yeah, I know. I mean, geographically speaking, that's thousands of kilometers separation. Yeah. It's, it is funny, though. You just highlighted it. I have found that the, you know, the leaders of the institutions in Canada, when they talk about other institutions, they never use the name of the institution. It's always just the first Sam. name of the person running it. And that's the way they address all of it. Oh, that's Sam's building. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like we all should know. I, mean, I guess maybe we, sh- we all should know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, at the point we did. I mean, it's, yeah. uh, you know, we did. So I guess it, it, uh, it does work that way. Uh, but yeah, very cool story. I mean, very humble beginnings and like what a growth trajectory. Because I think uh, you said he launched in 2000. Something like that. Yeah. yeah. It wasn't that long. I, it's not I, I, that long ago. It was in 1983. Yeah. It was, you know, it was this this millennium, right? So. Yeah. And now they are, you know, by any definition, institution level, real estate in Canada. Yeah. And I, I mean, First National has a great relationship with Killam. And so I have the fortune of, you know, benefiting from seeing a lot of the stuff that they work on. And and what I thought was really interesting is the, the model of the quasi-condo apartment merger to kind of generate some returns quickly, yeah. sort of almost subsidizing the apartment while you're waiting for that cash flow return to kind of generate in the future. I, did, I didn't want to totally nerd out on it, but I was <laughs> I was intrigued. I was like, I wouldn't mind seeing what that looks like on an Excel spreadsheet. And, yeah. You know what? I, and I and now, of course, in hindsight, I'm always doing this, but I, we should have talked about just the condo corp and how the relationship between the condo owners and the apartment uh, condo version. Anyway. Now we're nerding out. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Excuse me. We should probably say this. It was recorded on video. So if you want to, you can go and actually watch Phil conduct the interview with us and you get a little bit more of a sense. Like just a really kind of humble individual comes across. You would never guess this is the guy that started Kalem 20 years ago and is now the, you know, the president and CEO of one of the largest yeah. REITs in the country. And kind of just a nice, gentle, easygoing guy, which I, I mean, I always find that interesting when we get individuals like him at that stature, not dissimilar, I guess, to Maury, who's sort of the founder and owner of First National. Just kind of a regular guy, like it's not nothing, nothing eccentric. You you know you you wouldn't guess it if you were standing in an elevator or standing in line at a Tim Hortons. And the origin story not dissimilar. I know Phil mentioned having to kind of run to friends and family to scrounge up some dollars to get it going, which is the founding story of a lot of uh, real estate companies. But they're not the size of Killam. You know that's the that's the difference. That would be a very common avenue. Uh, you know, not dissimilar, of course, to you know. Maury doing something similar where he rented an office that was maybe 300 square feet and uh, 
Well, I, I mean, let's, we keep doing this because I find it just kind of fascinating, the profile of the individuals that have become so successful in our industry. And, and uh, I, I don't know for sure, but I would suspect Phil's not a yeller and a screamer. I don't think, you know, he's not banging. He's not making sure you work till midnight. Like I think it's the success has come just from, you know, smart decisions, personable, building relationships. You know, you know it's, it's not luck and it's not, you know, this insatiable work ethic. I'm sure he works extremely hard. I'm not saying yeah, that, right? Yeah, rack up that many units. But uh, I mean, it's, you know, it doesn't have that side. Maybe this is a, a negative connotation, but that Wall Street kind of version where, you know, the guys are, you know, working seven days a week, 20 hours a day, yelling and screaming at each other. And if you don't do that, you'll never make it. Like, it's not that, it's not that vibe. I think most of our industry is individuals like that. Not uh, iBankers keeling over dead at their desk. It's, yeah, uh, right. Yeah. It's just smart individuals, but good people that you want to get to know, that you want to build. And maybe that is to speak to the relationship orientation of of real estate. And one of the few ways to be successful here is just get along with other people. Yeah. I don't yeah. know. Is it that simple? Yeah. You've solved life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Be a good person. And that was a highlight for me of the, the marathon of uh, you know interviews we're doing here today. We've, we've put in the request at a few other conferences to get uh, Phil and for whatever reason, he couldn't, uh, couldn't make it happen prior. So I'm glad we finally got him on here in Toronto. But thanks everybody. Listen to the very end and we'll see you on the next one. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.